Hello, and welcome to Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 32 on January 12th, 2018, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Uh, This week, I'll be talking about cleaning up to start the new year. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. I've been a perennially messy person. I've tried to reform, and I've had some success last summer in my workshop. One day, I had to trap a swarm of bees, and I ran into my workshop to build a trap cone, and all of my tools were in the right place, and the materials were sorted and ready. It made the emergency build a pleasure. Contrast that to right now, at the end of the building season outside, and my workshop was full of stuff all piled around. I can't find what I need when I need it, which adds time to any project I try and do. Newsweek, or an article in Newsweek, notes that the average American spends about 55 minutes a day looking for something. Just think of that, 55 minutes every day looking for things because they're not in any one specified location. Spending a few hours or even a few days to organize and put things in their place is not a waste of time because that will be made up later when you're not looking for things. This year, I want to work on tidying. I guess it would be my New Year's resolution. And I'm looking to the east, Japan to be exact, for my inspiration and research. Uh, The reason for that is Japan has been well known for its attention to detail, especially in the cleanliness and tidiness department. Even early pit houses from thousands of years ago, dug up more recently by archaeologists, were clean of debris. This is, let me tell you, as an archaeologist, this is very unusual. Many societies have a lot of messy habits. So it's striking that thousands of years ago, people on the islands of Japan were already fairly tidy. Even visiting Chinese emissaries of the third century of the Common Era noted the neatness of the Japanese. Europeans, once they were allowed in during the age of colonialism, remarked on the cleanliness of the island and nation. And in turn, the Japanese commented on the fact that Europeans were dirty, smelly, lazy, and superstitious, which, to be fair, seem like reasonable critiques, as most Japanese then and now bathed once or twice a day, in contrast to the Europeans' more, let's say, periodic ablutions. In Japan, New Year's is for cleaning. The final part of December sees osuji, akin to spring cleaning. Starting January 1, I stopped all of my project and cleaned, tidied, and donated. I'm still in the process of it, but things are moving along really well. Japanese workplaces are known to follow the 5S concept, a way to optimize space and time in a densely populated country. The S's stand for, and I apologize in advance for my Japanese pronunciation, Siri, sorting, Saitan, storing, Saiso, shining, Seiketsu, sanitizing, and Shitsuke, strive. Many schools and businesses in Japan do not have custodians, and therefore the students and employees are more careful about keeping the place neat. This is where 5S comes in, and we'll talk about each one of the different S's in turn. Seri means separate the unnecessary. Clutter can pose dangers on a production floor, and it can overwhelm a home. What we want to do is make criteria to decide what is necessary 
and get rid of the rest. Part of this is letting go of things that might come in handy. I have been completely guilty of keeping all kinds of random things because, well, I'm going to do a project at some point and I, this scrap of fabric or, or this particular widget will come in handy. Well, the number of times that they actually have is very low. It's extremely rare that I'm working on a project and think to myself, oh, if only I had kept that one piece, I could finish this project. The number of times it's going to happen are outweighed by the amount of clutter that this kind of mentality can accumulate. Then comes Saitong. Put all necessary things in an orderly fashion. Ben Franklin had the adage of, quote, a place for everything and everything in its place, end quote. This exemplifies this step. Commonly used tools and items should be put in an optimal place, and less used ones should be stored so that they can be quickly retrieved. Saiso, shine and clean everything so leaks and breaks can be identified. Japanese schools are cleaned by the students in about 20 minutes a day after lunch, typically. This teaches that cleaning is everybody's responsibility. If you pay somebody to clean, you're missing out, because they may not tell you about a leaking pipe, mold, or other danger that must be dealt with. The Japanese use short-handled brooms and cloths for cleaning the floor instead of long-handled ones that keep the user's eyes too far away to spot issues. Think of how some people care for their car and know every inch of it, recognizing new dings immediately. That's the kind of care that this mentality brings to cleaning other things. You know that if you cleaned a certain area last week and now there's black mold, dirt, or some other blemish there, there might be something going on beyond normal wear and tear and you might need to pay some attention in that location. So it pays for itself, again, not only in having a cleaner environment to live in, but also uh, monitoring for potentially dangerous changes. I particularly like the ethos that cleaning is part of everyone's duties. A few years ago, a politician said that they hoped our country would soon go from haves and have-nots to just haves. And my immediate question was, who cleans the toilets in a world of haves? If everybody was able to hire somebody to clean, there would be no one left to hire to clean, right? Everybody has to clean. That's just part of being alive. Saiketsu, sanitize the workspace of hazardous or dangerous materials. This one's fairly self-explanatory. By standardizing activities and workplace layout, anyone can spot things that are out of place and pose a hazard, right? By keeping things orderly, it's really easy to see when something is not as it should be. Often color-coded tape or visual clues, like the outline of tools uh, on a board where they're supposed to be kept, help organize workspaces. Shitsuke, sustain the previous actions over time, or strive. Starting in childhood helps Japanese follow the previous S's, but you can pick these up at any point in your life. The goal here is to get things in order and keep things in that order. That is not relapsing. Checklists might actually be helpful at the beginning. There have been showing studies that doctors who use checklists are less likely to commit errors with patients. However, most doctors are unwilling to adopt them because it they feel that it makes them look less competent if they can't do it all off the top of their head. Well, we're not brain surgeons, we're not responsible for people's health in this situation, so use a checklist. Did I sweep the floors today? Right. Uh, make sure that you get a checklist together and that will help you keep on track until it becomes second nature. Did I do the dishes today? Did I sweep? Did I tidy up today? Check, check, and check. 
Straighten, store, shine, sanitize, and strive. Once the first two are completed, straighten and store, the last three should maintain that, right? So once we've separated out the clutter and stored away things in their proper place, then it's up to us to keep it going by shining, sanitizing, and striving to maintain it. Uh, so those are really the five S's, and this description of the five S's came from japaninterculture.com. It's japaninterculture.com. I'll link to that on the podcast page. When we talk about uh, Japanese-style cleaning, we invariably come to Marie Kondo, uh, who wrote the book The Life-Changing Magic of Tidy. Uh, this is kind of a pop culture or self-help sort of book, and it certainly does have a lot of popishness to it as I read it. It's a little less formal than most of the things I like to read, uh, and there were some things that went beyond what I suppose I would be comfortable with, talking about energies of and feng shui and things like that. Not necessarily something I'm into, but that doesn't mean it doesn't bring satisfaction to other people. So perhaps worth checking out. At any rate, this book had a lot of useful tips I was able to draw out of it. I won't be adopting everything from it, but I certainly will be using some of the things. So um, I'm briefly going to give you a book report on the life-changing magic of tidying. Um, that way you can read it if you want, or hopefully this will be enough of the gist of it that you'll feel like you have a handle on what it covers. She makes the good point that we're not taught to clean by our parents. And this is unlike anything else. Our parents teach us how to dress, how to care for clothing, how to eat, how to get around the world, how to interact with other people, but they don't teach us how to keep our places tidy. Japanese schools often lack janitors, as I've said, for cleaning, and thus the children are tasked with keeping their place spotless, and this makes them less prone to make a mess. If students or children in our own culture had to clean up after themselves more often, perhaps it would engender a little more carefulness. The idea of doing a little each day seems to lead to failure and relapsing in her experience. She recommends doing at least the first two S's, and I should note she doesn't use the five S's explicitly, um, but she recommends doing all of the sorting and storing in one go. This makes a more drastic and lasting change. Have you ever been to a house that is really neat? I think of the way my stepmother keeps her house it is extremely neat, and Anytime I'm there, I'm much more neat because I, am, I don't want to leave a mess in an otherwise tidy environment. It's really easy to notice how out of place those items are if they're left where they shouldn't be. That's kind of the idea here. If you clean everything all at once, make it all pristine, put everything away where it's supposed to be all at once in one big push, when you leave something out one afternoon or one evening and you come back later or the next morning and you see it, uh, whatever you left out, a piece of clothing or a book or whatever, it looks out of place because it is. Think of tidying as a special event, not a daily put away sort of tidying. That's a different thing that's maintaining later on. Also set a concrete goal. Uh, for me, for example, uh, I'm looking for a homestead with everything in its place and really not too much superfluous uh, scattered around. But each one of us is going to have a goal unique to them. So again, we'll start by discarding or separating. This can take a considerable amount of time, but keep at it. First discard and then decide where to put the remainder, basically, is her recommendations. Again, following the five S's, although she does not, again, do that explicitly. 
This is the book that you may have heard of where it asks whether or not things give you joy or spark joy, and that's the criteria by which you should decide whether or not to keep something. That is, choose what to keep, not to get rid of. And I think that's an important point, more so than the spark joy. You can come up with whatever criteria you want, but her basic argument is your default decision is to discard it, and you have to actively choose to keep it, which I think is very different than the mentality that at least I've had when I've gone through cleaning up and getting rid of extra things before. My thought was, oh, should I get rid of this? No, the thought should be, should I even keep this? Uh, and that kind of changes things. It makes, it's more of a fatigue to keep something rather than to get rid of it, uh, which I think really helped me. She recommends doing this selection process in a quiet space, preferably in the mornings. Um, and studies do show, not that she mentions this, but studies show that you have more decision-making gumption in the morning. And as the day goes on, you kind of tire yourself out of decision-making. So best to make these decisions early in the day. She has the idea of collecting everything from a certain category, be it clothes, linens, tools, books, etc., and lay it out on a floor or a table. I haven't done this in the past when I was cleaning out different things. We moved recently and I didn't do this, but you know, I've cleaned up my clothes before and still I was surprised by the amount of clothing I had. So putting it all together really will put it in perspective. Wow, I have a lot of this one particular thing. Her recommendation is start with your clothes, move on to books, papers, miscellaneous things, and then sentimental things last. But I think this is a pretty restricted uh, group of categories, especially for somebody who has a homestead. We have a lot of tools, we have a lot of kitchen items, there's music, there's all kinds of other things that we have in the house that we'd have to think about. So expand your categories if you need to. But within each category, form subcategories to help better evaluate. She recommends getting rid of things that don't spark joy again. Uh, but again, I feel like this sounds a little subjective. For many people, cleaning supplies, for example, do not spark joy. But you should probably keep some cleaning supplies on hand. Uh, I'm operating under a modified selection criteria used by backpackers. Uh, for example, when you come back from a hiking trip, unpack your bag into three piles. Things you used, things you didn't use, and things you hope you don't have to use but you still need to bring, like first aid kits. If you didn't use something you brought, consider strongly not bringing it next time. It was dead weight that you never used. Uh, I'll be using the same kind of selector and criteria and getting rid of things that I haven't used in a year as a baseline. I'll still be getting rid of some things that I have used in the last year, and there are some things I haven't used in the last year that I still am not going to get rid of, uh, but that's kind of a baseline for me. Uh, also, I'll be looking for whether or not I have redundant things. Again, this is why putting things all in one place, all the things from one category in one place and looking at them, helps you notice whether or not you have redundancies. For example, I found out I have three office staplers. Who needs three office staplers? I don't even know when I picked up three office staplers. I only remember ever buying one. Marie Kondo has many rules for folding and organizing these different categories of things, especially clothing. They may work for you, you may need to come up with your own, but whatever you choose, I would recommend setting a date in the future to stop and look back and evaluate, is this working? Uh, if it, it's not, change it so it will. Um, for example, she talks about certain pleasing arrangements of garments rising in order of height from left to right but really pick a method and use it. She recommends not changing clothes for the season 
which may be possible in some climates or for people who are indoors most of the time. But in Wisconsin, where I live, I do not need my thick wool work pants in the summer, and I have no use of shorts in the winter. But by reducing the amount of clothing overall, you still might be able to get all of your clothes, or whatever category you're dealing with, in the old space without a problem. For books, she recommends unshelving them and discarding them. Unshelving them and discarding those you mean to read sometime. Again, this is some time that will probably never come. She recommends actually touching each book, looking at it on its face, not just running your finger down the spines and pulling out a few volumes. She also recommends getting rid of textbooks from college or high school. Now, I'm an author and an academic, and this kind of rankled me, and I often go back to my textbook. I'm kind of surprised sometimes. Um, I've even looked in some of my high school history textbooks that I stole from high school. Sorry, Mr. Derby and Mr. Bryant. Yeah, I stole AP US history and AP European history textbooks. But I reread the part on the French Revolution during the financial crafts. I'm a bit of a nerd. If you haven't looked at your textbooks since you finished the class and you're in your 30s, you can safely get rid of them. Her paper sorting method is simpler. Put them in three categories. Papers currently in use, papers needed for a limited time, or papers that must be kept indefinitely, like marriage and birth certificates, passports, etc. Everything else should be discarded. She says to get rid of everything, like credit card statements, greeting cards, pay slips, manuals for appliances, and many more documents uh, that have served their initial purpose and will never be seen again. Uh, honestly, that's true. I have years of electrical statements, and it's not like the electrical company is going to take my word over their computer system anyway, so they can be safely gotten rid of once the bills have been paid. Uh, she also recommends keeping all the papers in one spot in the house. This helps keep things more orderly. Everything has a spot. The papers in your house should have one spot and one spot only. She really just likes what she calls the everything drawer or what my family calls the drawer of wonders. She recommends getting rid of it because if it's a drawer that can contain anything, any random bit of junk can be put in there without much of a thought. Whereas if you don't have a drawer that can catch all, then either you have to put something where it belongs or you have to get rid of it, which I think is a better decision. She's pretty vehement about novelty or free giveaway gifts, spare buttons, unidentified electrical cords, electronic packages, travel size soaps and shampoos and a few other things that she really just recommends people get completely rid of. And she also makes a good point, and this was really useful for me, that if you receive a gift and you won't get rid of that gift because of sentimental value, even if you're never going to use it, you're focused on keeping the wrong thing. And she recommends keeping the sentiment but discarding the unused item. I've gotten gifts over the years that aren't necessarily useful for me and I've kept them, made, I'm making a pile of them. It's nice to think back about the sentiment behind them, usually they're from family members, and how grateful I was to receive them, but you know they've served their purpose and they'll probably be getting donated for somebody who's going to make more of a use out of them. Uh, she recommends not having a place to store coins. Keep coins in your uh, purse or wallet and spend them. Same goes for mementos. Remember the feeling, but don't keep the thing because it's just a thing. Also, don't send boxes home for your parents to keep. Don't put some mementos in a box and send them back. You'll just end up having to go through that box, which frankly will probably not be unpacked. It'll be the same box just as you packed it when your parents have passed on. You're gonna have enough going on when that happens without having to deal with things that you've sent back home. Marie Kondo has many stories about stockpiles that she finds in clients' homes and 
I'll come back to this when I talk a little bit about minimalism and homesteading, but some stockpiles are a little ridiculous. If you buy enough of something that your stockpile will last you more than a year, it's probably too much. She talked about a client with 55 years worth of cotton balls, for example. But some things like summer food stored for winter and other canned goods, they have to be all right. Ditto firewood. Really anything that can be used within a year is okay to store as long as you are actively using it and working through instead of just building up a supply of something ad infinitum. She really dislikes storage and instead insists that everything have a spot. Quote, clutter is caused by the failure to return things to where they belong, end quote. And I, again, am absolutely guilty of this. I think most of us are. As I start a project, I get distracted with another project or something else comes up or I have other work to do and I leave the tools or materials out because I'm going to come back to it and I don't want to have to get them out again. But then sometimes I come back to them, sometimes I don't. And when I don't, it just makes a mess. So now I want to talk a little bit about the idea of minimalism and homesteading because these are not necessarily compatible. It's fine to live in a city and have three cooking utensils, two pots, and just enough plates for your household. But we live in the country. We grow a lot of our own food and have to process large amounts of harvest at once. Unfortunately, we need some specialty tools for the kitchen. This is just an example of one area where minimalism isn't necessarily practical, but it can still inform what we keep around. For the most part, we don't keep any single task tool unless it's a commonly used one like a tea strainer uh, or something essential to success that can't be replicated through some other means like an airlock that goes on a cider carboy. I, I can't do that with any other piece of equipment. My major problem with Marie Kondo's method and again, what I took out of the book were a lot of useful tips, but the overall method uh, may have been not applicable for somebody in a homesteading situation. Marie's condo method assumes ready access to food and anything you need outside the home. The goal that we're working towards is self or community sufficiency. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the modifications I'm making to this method, but briefly, the Institute, of course, is focused on how we're going to survive after uh, fossil fuels become a thing of the past. And to do that, we need to be able to take care of ourselves, to grow food, to house ourselves, to clothe ourselves, to keep ourselves warm and things like that. You can't do that as a minimalist in the modern sense of the word of having completely empty rooms and you know just a few articles of clothing and just we can do it in a way where we don't have superfluous and extra clutter that is we can do it with tools and things that have purpose and not a lot of other things uh, that would be the closest we can get to minimalism it's a different type of minimalism it won't look like minimalism because we'll still have a lot of tools but all those tools need to be used I remember my grandpa's farm he had a bucket full of screwdrivers right that that is not a homesteading type of minimalism that's just having a ton of screwdrivers you don't need certainly there are different sizes of screwdrivers but if you have over six screwdrivers you probably have too many how did I modify uh, the five S's and Marie Kondo's um, advice uh, into my own life? Let's start with clothing. We all end up with extra clothing, especially t-shirts. Uh, I did a clothing audit fairly recently, but it was still surprising to me when I put all my clothes in one spot. I had more than I expected, and I was, able, and I was still able to eliminate about a third of my clothes. Some were worn out, and I, I should have gotten rid of them a while ago. Others were not worn out enough because Frankly, I'd never worn them. 
so they're better used by others, so they'll be donated. And then I had t-shirts. Marie Kondo would recommend getting rid of all but a few favorite t-shirts. I don't really have too many favorites, so what I did was I chose four to wear today, and I put about 12 away in a box. As one of my t-shirts wears out, I will turn it into rags, and then I will pull a fresh t-shirt out of my box. And over time, I will work through all of my t-shirts. And that's fine, because that's what they're there for. They're there to wear and to wear out. But that way, I'll be able to work through them systematically. I'm going to do the same with button-up shirts, pants, and undergarments. I frankly won't need to shop for any basic clothes for years. I'm trying her vertical filing folding method instead of my usual stacking of folding clothes. So like most people, I stack my clothes. I would fold my shirts, for example, and I'd stack them one on top of the other. She recommends folding them uh, a little tighter so that you can stack them side by side. That way you can access each one of them without disrupting the entire pile. I'll give it a try, but after about three months, I'm going to reevaluate it and see if I like that method uh, or if I want to go back to what I had been doing or something completely new. First I separated the first S, then I stored the second S, and now I'm going to shine, sanitize, and strive to maintain this order. Again, we'll, we'll see how that goes. For tools, in an ideal world, one would only need one of each tool. But the more you use them, the more specialized tools become required. For example, I have five hammers a rubber mallet, a framing hammer, two small general hammers, and a sledgehammer. Each one of these serves a distinct purpose except the general hammers, one of which will be donated to the tool library. And I'll be talking about this tool library in upcoming podcasts, so keep an eye out for that. So this is the separating step. For sorting, I'll be making toolboxes with related items inside. One box for carpentry, one box for plumbing, one box for electrical, and so on. And that way, when I'm doing a project, be it carpentry, plumbing, electrical, or what have you, I can pull out the appropriate box, take it to the worksite, do the job, put everything back in the box where it belongs, and then put it away. And I hope that that'll be a useful system for me. In the kitchen, we're about to renovate our kitchen, and so we're pretty careful about items as it is, and we basically have what we need without too much extra. But it will be instructive once we refurbish our kitchen to go through during the separating step. We're talking about workflow design in the new kitchen. We'll have different stations, basically, from store food to preparation to cooking to serving and cleaning. So the storing of utensils will be automatically organized in that system. I'll talk about that in a later podcast. For the office, you know what? I did not know I had so many pens. The most useful part, again, of the KonMari method is putting all of one type of thing in a place for sorting. It helps put in perspective just how much of one thing we have. The idea here is to store away the extras and have a few pens out in designated locations. That way we know where they are and can use them up before replacing them. The same idea can be applied to tape, envelopes, paper clips, scrap paper, and so on. Sort, store. That's where I am right now. I'm, I'm working on the first two S's. And eventually, I'll report back on how the final three S's are going. If you're interested in learning more about this style of cleaning, check out the podcast page for a few links to get you started. I'd recommend starting with the five S's and a few of the tips I've mentioned from Marie Kondo and find something that works for you. Let me know how it goes by sending me an email, scott at lowtechinstitute.org, and maybe I'll feature your comments when I update this story in a few months. Now let's turn and look at this week in low-tech news. I want to touch on what many stories have talked about this last week. How can this cold weather be a sign of global warming? Here it is. Basically, the usual pattern is that the Arctic air is much colder than continental air, even in winter. And this temperature differential keeps the two weather patterns separate. 
As the Earth warms, the Arctic warms more quickly than temperate or tropical zones, and therefore the temperature differential between the U.S. say and the Arctic is much less. This causes Arctic air to drop down into the continent instead of being trapped near the pole. Thus, the colder weather is actually a sign of a warming planet, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. Here in Madison, we went from negative teens last week to positive 50 this morning, and we'll be back in the freezer this afternoon. So it's been a roller coaster here, but one week of freezing temperatures doesn't mean global warming is not happening. A story from the New York Times talks about how climate change is affecting the pH of rivers and lakes. Absorbing more CO2 lowers the pH, making it more acidic, and changes the chemistry that organisms have evolved to live on, starting at the bottom of the food chain with algae, through water fleas, which eat algae, and small fish, which eat water fleas, and so on up the food chain. It's as if we're running a huge, uncontrolled experiment, but we depend on the test subjects to live, so maybe not a great idea. An Outside Chance blog discusses the book A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, which looks at the history of capitalism and the future of the environment through case studies. The basic argument is that a yearning for cheapness, whether it is products or lives, has driven society as we know it today, which may lead to dire consequences. The article and the book seem like they might be worth a read. The Low Tech Magazine, which is not affiliated with the Institute, has a long article on the seductiveness of energy efficiency, which suggests that we're lulled into complacency and may use more energy if we think we're being energy efficient. I certainly am less likely to turn out lights when I leave the room if they're LED and have, have had the thought, well, they use a little energy anyway, I can just leave them on, I'll be back in a few minutes anyway. The author argues for energy sufficiency instead of efficiency. Basically, make use of less. That's definitely worth a read. Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the low-tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or follow the link in the podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. This week, we have launched the website for our tool library. And if you're not familiar with the tool library, it works just like your local book library. We have a whole bunch of tools. You make a reservation if you like. You come in, you check out the tool, you take it home, you carry out your project that you're working on, you bring the tool back, and that's it. Now, a few tools that suffer from wear and tear, like circular saw blades and a few others, have really nominal fees to be used like 25 cents a day so we can buy new saw blades and things like that but for the most part all the basic tools are free to use sometimes you have to leave a deposit with an expensive tool perhaps but you get that all back so it's really a free service that we want to offer to people in our community that is uh, the Cooksville area uh, and also to Institute members so if you're in the Madison area uh, it's certainly worth looking into becoming a member so you can make use of this great resource that we're gonna have in the area we're currently accepting donations of tools or money, uh, and if you donate this year, uh, you'll have free access to the library. We hope to be uh, building the library, which will basically be a tool wall uh, currently in our garage, but eventually when we have an institute building that is a standalone building, we'll move the tool library there, but it will be a wall uh, with all the tools displayed and available for, for use. Uh, we will be updating the website and Instagram and showing the progress of making that wall 
and also we'll have information on its grand opening because as I said it's not quite open yet but we are accepting donations of both funds and tools and remember that the Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization so any funds that you donate to us are tax deductible if you donate $50 uh, you'll get a free institute membership for the year. Uh, if you donate $100, you'll get that membership, but you'll also get your name listed on the tool wall and our website as a sponsor of this project. Uh, so please check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org, and you can click on the Libraries tab to find the Tool Library page with all of this information. That's it for this week. The Low Tech podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was 8-Bit Party off the album 8-Bit Empire by Ozed. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you're enjoying this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly at scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care.